it's really this idea that there's a lot of transactional relationships in the world. This kind of idea of like, I go into a meeting and I want something and then I try to get it, right? And that in a way is a lot of times in the way of creating true meaningful connection and serendipity because you're so focused on one singular thing that you have those blinders, right? To focus on that one thing. But actually, if you connect with that person on a truly human level about things you're really excited about, that person also will be much more likely to be interested in actually helping you out and to be interested in actually finding common denominators. And so I've been a big fan, both because it feels more authentic, but also because it actually makes life much more joyful. Welcome to the Big Careers Small Children podcast. My name is Verena Hefti. I believe that no one should have to choose between becoming a CEO and enjoying their young children. For far too long, brilliant people have found themselves stuck on the career ladder when they have children, which leads to gender inequality and the same stale, mostly male, middle-class people leading our organizations. We need to change this. And in fact, my hope is that many of you listening now to this podcast will progress to the most senior leadership roles possible, where you make decisions that make our world a better place for next generations and especially for the next generation of parents. Beyond the podcast, I am the CEO and founder of the Social Enterprise Leaders Plus. If you want support from brilliant like-minded peers, join events or find out our world-class career development program, the Leaders Plus Fellowship Program, then sign up to our monthly newsletter on leadersplus.org.uk forward slash newsletter. By 3rd of October, you can apply for our fellowship for ambitious working parents in the NHS. It's our first sector-specific fellowship program and also will open applications in 2023 for our cross-sector fellowship to support working parents who are ambitious in their careers. Today, I talk to Professor Christian Bush about the serendipity mindset. How do we create good luck? And I have to say, this conversation is one of those that have, has really changed my own practice. And I've been able to try lots of things out in the days immediately after the conversation. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's uh, great to be here. I love connecting ideas, connecting people and, and the spark that comes from it. I started out as community builder, then went into entrepreneurship, social entrepreneurship, and later ended up in academia. And uh, what excites me a lot is the what I've seen, you know, across all these different areas that the most successful, purpose-driven, inspiring people, they seem to have something in common, which is that they intuitively cultivate serendipity. They see a little bit more in unexpected moments and then turn into positive outcomes. And so I've observed that in myself, that I I just love this idea of these kind of coincidences that just randomly happen. And so my kind of last 10 years have focused on, is there a science-based framework for this? And so my own life, you know, we had a baby 11 months ago. And as you know, with kids, especially, it's impossible to plan everything, right? And so I feel that mindset is especially with kids. Uh, it has helped me a lot. I come from Germany. We love planning. We love mapping everything out. And then you realize life unfolds unexpectedly. And so uh, building a muscle for that is what I'm very excited about, the muscle for the unexpected. And it's so interesting because we're always told, and I'm probably guilty of this, I do tell people to think about your future if you want to have some sort of influence. I guess, have you always been really open-minded? I'm not saying your book is about being happy-go-lucky, but did you at some point, were you that in planner and, and just trying to control your future? Or have you always intuitively felt the way that you describe in your book that we, we should be looking at life? 
I guess there's two pieces uh, to it. One is that the way I grew up, I was very fortunate that my parents were extremely loving and, and they gave me that feeling of, okay, you're worthy. Like whatever you do in life, you're worthy. So yes, if you have a plan, if you map this out, great. But if the plan doesn't work, you'll be fine. Like, it, And I think that's kind of like that feeling of, okay, in a way, life will continue no matter what happens. I think that gave me that kind of basic confidence that life will be okay. And I think that's what I'm trying to instill in my daughter as well. You know, as she grows up now, and that's kind of my key goal that she feels, you know, whatever. It's always great to plan things out. And, and it, it's wonderful to have an idea of where you're going, right? It gets us going. It's beautiful to tick boxes and say, yes, I made that milestone happen. And at the same time, really that idea that my self-worth is not directly related to it. And, you know, something that we did recently, for example, uh, we did a, a study with uh, over 40 CEOs of large companies that have been outperforming other companies and that are somehow purpose-driven at the moment to try to push more purpose. So companies like MasterCard and others. And we sat down with them and we said, what is it that truly makes you successful? And what I found really interesting about it is that one common theme is that they're really good at saying, here's a sense of direction. So if I MasterCard, I want to get 500 million people into the financial system who were previously unbanked. Or if I'm Paul Pullman, I want to somehow help. So the, the former Unilever CEO, uh, Unilever CEO, I want to kind of help people help themselves. So this is my sense of direction. Here's an approximate strategy. So, you know, as MasterCard, here's a certain ways of how we can make it happen. But I'm already telling you now as CEO that whenever we get new information, we will build that into it. And that's not a threat to our strategy. That's not a threat to our plan or our identity, but that's part of the plan. And I think that's what I found fascinating. And I've, I've tried to build that as much as possible into my life at the moment to say, how do I somehow have a sense of where I'm going in terms of I want to write this book. I want to get it out there. I want to get people excited about it. And at the same time, how exactly I do this is evolving. There's an initial strategy, but you know what? I'm not married to it. And I think that kind of, in a way, I found fascinating because as a German, you know, I grew up like in school, right? They tell you have a plan to your point, like, you know, always know exactly what you want to do. And then real life happens and you scramble. And so I've always had a little bit of anxiety about the unexpected. And so that to me also has been a way to kind of like decrease anxiety levels around the unexpected. And was that a trigger for you to start writing the book and focusing on this work academically? Or what made you decide to invest a huge amount of time into this? It was very serendipitous. I mean, I in my work back when I was a community builder, for example, one community, we brought together young people who in different fields pushing the boundaries and we brought them together around the world, helped them make ideas happen. And you would go to a dinner and people would always be like, oh my God, such a coincidence, such a coincidence, such a coincidence, such a coincidence. And so I got very excited about the question, is there a way you can accelerate those coincidences? But at that point, it was more kind of, you know, a hobby and like something that I found interesting in my life and in other people's life, but that was it. But then later, you know, when I went to academia and my core focus was on what makes individuals successful, what makes companies successful, how do you scale financial and social impact and things like that. And then serendipity just popped up everywhere. It, it kind of like as one of the key themes among people who, who make stuff happen. And so I just got really curious about, is there a science behind this? Because we all have serendipity stories in some way, but is there a pattern behind this that allows us to influence it? And, and so that's kind of really what this focuses on. Can you just explain to those of us who are not native speakers, what serendipity mean? Yeah. So serendipity really as this active luck, this unexpected good luck that's based on our own actions. So it's very different from, you know, blind luck. Blind luck is being born into a nice family, stuff like that. 
that plops into our lap and that's that, right? That's just a given or not given, unfortunately, and leads to a lot of societal inequality. And then serendipity is really this, this active luck that we create based on how we react to the unexpected. So to give you an example, imagine you're in a coffee shop and if you have erratic hand movements like I do, you spill a lot of coffee. So imagine you spill coffee over someone in the coffee shop and you, you, you know, they look at you slightly annoyedly, but you sense there might be something there. You don't know what it is. You just sense there might be something there. And now you have a couple of options, right? One option is you just say, I'm so sorry. You walk outside and you think, ah, what could have happened had I spoken to that person? Option number two, you start that conversation and that person turns out to become the love of your life or your co-founder or you name it. The point is our reaction to the unexpected moment, making the accident meaningful is what creates that unexpected good luck. And so if you look at examples of serendipity, you know, we can talk more about, for example, potato washing machines, Viagra, all these things. It's always that there's some kind of unexpected event, right? So spilling the coffee or things like this. But then we have to do something with that moment and turn it into an outcome. And that's really the active part that makes it very different from blind luck. I imagine some people listening to this might be thinking, yeah, sounds good engineering, good luck. But how important is it really? Does it really make a difference or is hard work still the more important thing? And I'm saying this as a Swiss person who obviously Mm -hmm. has been socialized that hard work is all that matters. And I'm sure in Germany it's a similar spirit in society. Why do you know that serendipity is really important? Well, it's interesting because so when we a lot of our research focuses on what makes companies successful, what makes individuals successful, and serendipity a lot of times is behind the key innovations, it's behind the key inventions, it's behind people, how people found a lot of times love. It's like it, behind a lot of the kind of key moments in life is something like serendipity. And people then always say like, oh, I was just lucky here or something like this. But then it feels like a little bit, no, but actually I worked a little bit for this. And so what we what we saw in our research is that People work very hard to be luckier, you know, like like when you are the CEO of MasterCard, you just you don't have just luck, like running into a person who tells you about a potential new strategy. You had the open mind for that. You were open. You were engaging with people. You worked hard to make people trust you. Things like this where by working hard, you had more luck. And so one of the things that I'm very excited about is getting away from this old dichotomy, which is either hard work or luck, right? So as opposites to saying, no, people can work very hard to have more luck because they are practices. And so I'm a big fan of stepping back and thinking about what are key curiosities I have at the moment? What are key things in my life? I want to expand my business to Poland. I want to learn more about parenting, whatever it is. And then building that into our introductions, building that into different conversations. And you'll be amazed how often, serendipitously so, there will be kind of these interesting overlaps where you're like, oh my God, it was just lucky that I talked with this person about it. Yeah, but you made it more likely that it would happen. The same in a company context. Um, there's a lot of practices that either make it more likely that serendipity can happen. We can talk more about this, things like project funerals and so on, but also very simple things that make it more likely for people that they spot the unexpected. For example, asking in the weekly meeting, what surprised you last week? It's a very simple question. But what happens is that people start to look out for the positively unexpected. Let's talk about the potato machine story. Can you explain what that was about and what you've learned from it? Yeah, essentially, it's a white goods company in China. They produce washing machines, refrigerators, and so on. And a couple of years ago, they received calls from farmers. And the farmers told them, your crappy washing machine is always breaking down. Well, why is the washing machine breaking down? Well, we're trying to wash our potatoes in it and it doesn't seem to work. So what would we usually do? We'd probably say, well, you know, that's not part of our plan. Our marketing plan says you don't wash potatoes in a washing machine. You wash clothes in there. Now, they did the opposite. They said, you know what? That's unexpected. But there's probably a lot of farmers in China who have a similar problem. 
So why don't we build in a dirt filter and make it a potato washing machine? That's how the potato washing machine became one of their products. Now, if you would ask at a weekly meeting, what surprised you last week? Someone might say, you know, it surprised me that farmers use our washing machine differently than we expected. And so what you're doing here is you're legitimizing the unexpected as a source of potential ideas, of a source of potential inventions, but also you de-risk it for people to bring up those kind of unexpected ideas and so on. So there's a lot of these kind of practices where we can make it more likely that serendipity emerges in companies. Interesting. And what else have you found that makes it more likely for serendipity to emerge more frequently? You mentioned that we need to work hard to create those good luck situations. What have you learned that is important? Well, I'm a big fan of really thinking about how can I develop some kind of key curiosity, right? So something, if I want to explore a particular area at the moment. So let's say I'm in banking, but what I'm really excited about is working with social enterprises in Nicaragua, then essentially, if that's my key curiosity, how do I develop a couple of hooks around this, right? So, hey, I'm super excited about learning more about this at the moment. Then I bring that into every conversation. Then when I speak with people and I ask them questions, I'm asking them questions that are less about what do you do and like puts people into boxes and more about what do you enjoy doing? You know, what is it about this that you that motivated you to do that? Whatever it is, something that makes you learn more about the other person so that they then might say, oh my God, what I really enjoy doing is helping other people develop their businesses. You might be like, oh my God, I want to do that in Nicaragua. Like, why don't we do something together? The point is the way we ask questions, the way we answer questions, like is a huge aspect to, to how we can, how we can do it. I think a lot of it is also around this question of how do we position ourselves for luck in terms of how do we use things like social media and other kind of outlets to put a couple of information points out there that other people can connect with. So, for example, you know, just sharing on Twitter or, or other social media from time to time a couple of interesting tidbits where other people might be like, oh, I didn't even know you're interested in this kind of thing. You know, now let's let's talk about it. So there's a lot of those kind of things where it's just essentially thinking about how can I make it more likely that other people connect the dots for me? But also then in companies, you know, as a senior executive or so, I'm really building a culture for this. So one example is building practices within the organization, like the project funeral, where the project funeral is all about saying, Usually in companies, whenever something doesn't work out, we try to hide it, right? Because we don't want to be the loser, the failure, like didn't get the idea to fruition and things like this. But that's a pity, right? Because we learn the most from things that don't work as a kind of experimentation process. And so the project funeral is about saying, whenever something doesn't work out, how do we take the learning from this and then lay it to rest the project and kind of reflect on it together? So it's not about celebrating failure. It's about celebrating the learning from what didn't work. And so in this one example, it's a, a company that produces this like window glass and, and other things. And it was an amazing window glass, but the project manager laid it to rest in front of people from other divisions and said, look, we learned that next time we have to understand the market better. The technology is great, but the market wasn't big enough. Now, someone in the audience goes, hey, 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 have you considered what this would mean for solar? If you would take this technology into a solar context, how much energy that could absorb? And that is how, quote unquote, serendipitously so part of their solar division emerged. Now, when you look at these kind of things, again, people would always say, oh, I was just lucky that that person was at the right time in the right place and so on. But you created the conditions for it to make it more likely that this could happen. And that is that is essentially about leadership. That's about thinking about what could be practices in my organization that I can readjust. That's about creating a culture of psychological safety. So thinking about how can I make people feel comfortable that they can actually bring up new ideas and so on, but also on the individual level. It's about working on our own. And I think the biggest thing here, 
and I'm sure we'll talk more about this, is really what are our underlying self-limiting beliefs? Because we all have these kind of things that hold us back from having more serendipity, right? So if everyone you know who listens to this, I would recommend like really thinking about what were moments in life where serendipity could have happened, but it didn't. So where you were in this meeting, you had this unexpected idea, but you didn't bring it up because you didn't feel worthy, ready, like an imposter, you name it. Or you ran into that amazing speaker at a conference unexpectedly. So you met them kind of like somewhere and then you didn't talk with them and you didn't feel worthy, ready, exquisite. And really kind of understanding what's the pattern behind this and how can I work on this? And so one thing that helped me a lot is, you know, when you have something like fear of rejection, for example, to then reframe the situation away from what's the worst thing that can happen if I do it, right? So what's the worst thing that I can happen if I talk with someone in a coffee shop is rejection, right? The sting of rejection that really hurts. But what's the worst thing if you don't do it? If you reframe that, then you realize, oh my God, then I'll think for whole a whole week probably what could have happened had I spoken with the person, had I spoken with that speaker and so on. And so the point is, once we reframe it towards what's the worst thing that could happen if I don't do it, then we realize, oh, actually doing it might be less risky than not doing it. Mm, true. Actually, it really resonates with me that in a way you almost have to be comfortable with with the risk and also comfortable with that you cannot control the outcome. You might say, oh, well, actually, I have this new found interest in solar panels and how we can apply this technology in a new setting. And I might not know anything about it. I might feel very weird to move away from an area. You know, I'm a successful social entrepreneur in the gender space, for example, and People know me for it. I have boards for it. I, it's a very safe space. But actually, you're saying the luck comes from just having new conversations with new people, mentioning those things that you're interested in. And I think the other thing that resonates a lot with me is, is the idea that it just makes it more joyful. I think life is more fun when you have random conversation. Correct me if, if I'm wrong and you're telling me no, those conversations are not random. But actually, I always try to have conversations that are random with people that have nothing to do with what I'm here to do right right now, even on the street or with my neighbors. It just makes life so much more joyful. And sorry, I'm rambling, but even just thinking back, like I didn't realize this, but actually so many of the key moments when I set up the social enterprise, I think a key moment was that I managed to convince the MP to have an event in the House of Commons, which is, you know, a UK power centre. I did that at the very beginning before I even started the social enterprise. And that wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for a random conversation about the idea of having an event in the most powerful places with someone who I didn't really, you know, didn't talk a lot to. So basically, long story cut short, it kind of resonates what you're saying. (laughs) No, and you're so right, right? That like, in a way, when you think back to life-changing moments, it's a lot of times the openness to something that that might be there, right? So for example, Sha Wismond, who's an amazing businesswoman in, in the UK, who built her own PR agency and like got an MBE at some point and like very kind of successful woman. She essentially had her break when she was in, in university, I think studying international relations or so. And she won a competition of a magazine to interview like a world boxing champion because she was interested in, in things like that. She interviewed him just with the idea of, hey, great, I'm going to have a great interview. And like, it's going to be fun to talk with this person. And then he was so excited by her that he was like, you should be my PR person. She didn't have a lot of background in PR. So she was like, well, what do I know about this? But she was like, look, you know things about boxing. You seem to be a great personality. You know, I want you to to do my PR. And then she built on the back of this uh, her PR agency and so on. So similar to your House of Commons experience where it's those kind of moments where 
that conversation could have gone into so many different directions, but being open to that idea that it might lead to something that actually could go there, but also then kind of being really thinking about being intentional about those kind of conversations in the sense of how do I make it meaningful and really focus on what the other person is most interested in. And at the same time, also think about, okay, what dots could really connect here? And what I found fascinating then is that life does become more joyful. I mean, take the example you go to a fisher village somewhere in Italy and you go there and you might meet this wonderful fisherman or fisherwoman. And you might think first, I don't have anything in common with this person, right? I'm like in London, I'm kind of like building things and building my enterprise and so on. And that person kind of like is on their boat. What do we have in common? But if you ask them something like, you know, what is it about the sea that you find interesting? Whatever it is, like something that makes you understand them as a person a bit more, they might say, I'm longing for the endlessness of the sea. And then you might be like, oh my God, I'm constantly longing for the endlessness of knowledge or the endlessness of something else. So the point is, we have all these unexpected overlaps where they probably also had a parent they lost at some point, or they probably also had something that brings you together once you find that overlap. And I think that's kind of one of the biggest joys in life to find these kind of unexpected overlaps where you're like, oh, I didn't even know you have much more in common with me than I actually thought you have. Mm. You seem quite energetic, even though you do have an 11-month-old baby. I can imagine that a lot of people listening to this will think, oh my goodness, now I also have to have conversations that create luck in addition to all the 110 things that I have to do when I, I need to run constantly. I have so many tasks. My baby wants me all the time. I'm absolutely exhausted because of the sleep deprivation. What's your response to that? Would you would you say it's normal and okay to just retreat into your snail shell during a time like that? Or would you say, well, actually, no, this is a time to really go out there and speak to people? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I feel there's probably two things that come to mind. One is that I talked about this with like fellow community builder recently that people like us who host a lot of dinners, who, who kind of bring people together, people always think we're so extrovert, but actually we're very introvert. We just kind of, we have these spikes of extroversion where we bring people together over dinner. We enjoy it for one and a half hours and then we're so exhausted that we have to retreat and kind of have the feeling that the event goes on without us, but we're somehow still part of it. Like that kind of thing where in a way kind of bringing people together ourselves in a way, is a very kind of introvert type thing to do because then you don't have to kind of join another group, but you can create your own group and kind of define the boundaries of that group and so on. And so I found it really interesting that for kind of closet introverts like myself who seem very extrovert, but actually who need a lot of time with themselves and kind of really get a lot of energy from being alone or with a book or so, I feel there's two things to it. One is that there's a lot of things we anyways have to do, right? So there's a lot of things we anyways have to probably go to XYZ event from time to time or talk with XYZ person. So why not make that more joyful and meaningful by seeding a couple of, you know, hooks and everything in that? So that's the kind of things that, that we can anyways do because that's just the life we live in a world designed for extroverts in a way. And then at the same time, I'm a big fan of thinking about how can we leverage the superpower of extroverts for that we don't have to do it all. So for example, when the book came out, when I would go to dinners or something, the first thing I would do is to go to the host and try to get them excited about the book so that they would walk around and tell everyone about it so that then people would come to me and I wouldn't have to kind of pitch it to people or get people excited all the time because that would require so much energy. And so it's kind of these things where working with extroverts together who can kind of be part of that journey, I found very interesting. And then third, most interestingly and importantly, a lot of times serendipity comes from quiet sources, right? It comes from reading a book and then realizing, oh, that could be a movie, this kind of particular thing in here, or, you know, like all these unexpected moments that come from just being alert to the world. And I want to give you an example there. It's an experiment that I've always been a big fan of. And this experiment has entertainment value, but there's other experiments that have very similar results where 
they pick people who self-identify as very lucky. So people who say good things tend to happen to me and so on. And then people who self-identify as very unlucky. So people who say bad things always happen to me. I'm always in accidents and so on. And so they pick one of each and they say, walk down the street, go into a coffee shop, sit down, and then we'll have our interview, our conversation. What they don't tell them is that there's hidden cameras across the street and inside the coffee shop. There's a five pound note, so money right in front of the coffee shop door. And inside the coffee shop, there's one empty seat next to this extremely successful businessman who can make big dreams happen. Now, the lucky person walks down the street, sees the five pound note, picks it up, goes inside the shop, orders the coffee, sits next to the businessman, has a conversation, and they exchange business cards, and potentially an opportunity comes out of it. The unlucky person walks down the street, steps over the five pound note, so doesn't see it, goes inside the shop, orders a coffee, also sits next to the businessman, ignores the businessman, and that's it. Now, at the end of the day, they ask both people, how was your day today? And so the lucky person says, it was amazing. I found money in the street, made a new friend, and, you know, potential opportunity coming out of it. The unlucky person just says, well, nothing really happened. And so the point here is that you can put people into exactly the same situation with very different outcomes. And the reason I'm telling you this story is that, yes, the second piece, the talking with the businessman, that's easier when you feel comfortable with actually just speaking with people like you seem to do, right, where you just kind of like start that conversation, right, which is great. And then at the same time, you can also find, if you're extremely introverted, you can also find that money in the street if you look for it. And so that's really kind of the thing where I find a lot of money in the street, for example, because I expect it, mostly pennies. So it doesn't really like change my life. But it's amazing how much money people turn to drop because, you know, it's I drop money from time to time, like the kind of penny type things. And it's just what people do. Kids usually find it, right? Because kids are still expecting that everywhere there could be something versus adults are kind of like fight or flight. There won't be money in the streets. So I won't even look there. And so the very long story short is that, especially as introverts, we might find serendipity in the most unexpected of places. And if someone listening can identify with the person that you've described who will step over that note and who will not strike up a conversation with the businessman, what should they take from this? Is it, I mean, it's a big ask to fundamentally change your outlook to relationships and to life and to opportunities. What would be your recommendation to them if they want to move towards that serendipity mindset? You know, it reminds me of a colleague of mine when I still taught in London, a very eminent professor type person. And, you know, he told me, look, Christian, I love you. I love your work. But why do I need serendipity in my life? Like, I'm fine. Like, I have a job. I have a family. Like, why would I need that? And so we made a deal and we said, do a couple of small things differently over the next weeks. Ask slightly different questions, put a couple of hooks into conversations, and then we'll, we'll meet again. Now, he comes back after a couple of weeks, and he's like, Christian, I didn't know life can be so joyful. And so the point here being that you can't preach this, right? You can't tell a person who tends to be unlucky, or in his case, it wasn't even unlucky. It was just kind of not wanting like to be in that kind of serendipity mindset space all the time. You can't really preach that. You can't really tell someone, be luckier, right? That that doesn't work. That usually has the opposite effect. But if you kind of start with small behavioral changes where people do small things differently, where people like have small habits that they change. For example, you know, when you have a conversation, start to look out for one positive thing that could come out of it. Make one introduction when you like set yourself the goal of making one introduction when you meet someone or contributing one idea. Like once you get yourself into that mindset of connecting dots, like contributing to people and so on, it's amazing once it starts how especially those people have the biggest impact. Like I always thought, you know, this book, this content would be for people like us who intuitively do a lot of it. And then it gives them vocabulary. It gives them kind of like even more practices. But what I've realized is that the people who actually have the biggest change happen are the ones who are at the beginning skeptical and say, oh, but like, I can't learn this. Like, this is not who I am. 
But then once you kind of start doing a little bit of the small things, you're like, hey, actually, that has a real impact in my life. And so that's what I'm most excited about now, that kind of big change then with those kind of people. Sounds intriguing. It sounds like when you do have these conversations, you don't actually have to go in there and say, well, I have now got this new interest in solar panels. Just for the podcast listeners, don't write to me about solar panels. They're great, but it's not <laughs> really my area of, of interest at the moment. So let's say you're saying that you actually should be doing as well as to try to help the other person and not just use them in a way. Because I imagine if some people will feel really uncomfortable with coming and wanting to get something from someone else. I know that's not what serendipity is about, but I find the example that you gave about offering that person something new quite interesting. And I think a lot of people will value that. Yeah. And, and that's the thing that I found most interesting that in a way, it's really this idea that there's a lot of transactional relationships in the world. This kind of idea of like, I go into a meeting and I want something and then I try to get it, right? And that in a way is a lot of times in the way of creating true meaningful connection and serendipity because you're so focused on one singular thing that you have those blinders, right? To focus on that one thing. But actually, if you connect with that person on a truly human level about things you're really excited about, that person also will be much more likely to be interested in actually helping you out and to be interested in actually finding common denominators. And so I've been a big fan, both because it feels more authentic, but also because it actually makes life much more joyful to go into a conversation with the idea of how can I help the other person? How can I contribute to their life? Can I make one introduction? Can I contribute to one idea and whatever? And what's amazing usually is that people then kind of like are like, oh my God, like this is really interesting. Like this kind of reminds me of this. Like, why don't we also talk about this? And then at the end of the day, something even more exciting happens. To give you an example, I was at a company event retreat a couple of weeks ago in near London. And we did this hook strategy kind of exercise. And one of them then kind of essentially most of them were kind of gaming entrepreneurs and people who who have kind of their own enterprises. And so the one gentleman who then after a few weeks sent me feedback, he would be like, look, usually when I introduce myself, I would just say I'm a gaming entrepreneur. And then I would try to pitch myself. I would try to pitch my ideas or who I am on the other person. And then usually kind of that is fine, but like it's kind of it doesn't lead to to exciting things necessarily always. And what he, he did now is to say, when he introduced himself, he would say something like, I'm a gaming entrepreneur, but what I'm really excited about is black, black holes in the metaverse. And so he he did that a couple of times. And then one person was like, oh my God, I love black holes. And then they started to nerd out for half an hour or longer. And then at some point that other person was like, you know what? I really like you. I want to introduce you to an investor who can help you with your gaming startup. And so the point here is that that kind of idea that this person didn't pitch them, if they would have pitched them, they probably wouldn't have made that introduction for them because they were like, who is that guy? Like they just started to pitch me. But if you kind of like genuinely connect with someone and then that someone says, you know what? I really like you. Like I really want to help you out too. Then actually that becomes this beautiful kind of much more interesting thing. And so I'm a big fan of this idea of really focusing on meaningful connection, meaningful relationships, allowing the other person to talk about what they are really excited about, and then thinking about how can something come from this versus going into a conversation with one clear objective. That can be nice, but similar to the example we had earlier, it's nice to have a sense of direction for whatever we do, for a deal or something, but then also allowing new solutions to occur. And I've been teaching a lot of negotiations, for example, and same in negotiations, right? You might come in and think there's only one way to solve the problem, but you can build packages. You can think about things so creatively that makes a completely different outcome than what you expected would be positive. Fascinating. Can I ask you, how do you introduce yourself at the moment you're obviously a professor and an author but just to get an example of how you would bring in that area of curiosity for yourself yeah 
That's a great question. I mean, it's very different depending on the context I'm in. I sometimes just, I love the idea of considering myself a student of life. So I'm kind of like, usually I'm coming at this, but in a more professional setting, it will usually be, yeah, like I'm, I'm a professor at NYU. What I'm really excited about is kind of understanding how serendipity works and how we can cultivate it. But recently I had a baby girl and so she is most of my focus. And so kind of bringing in the parenting, bringing in the, the serendipity and bringing in kind of my role. And so those three aspects usually then you know, a lot of times people will be like, oh my God, yes, I have also a kid now. And like, let's talk about this or things like this. And so what I found is that brings that multi-layeredness then to conversation that we might start talking about the kid first, but then, oh, what are you doing at NYU? Great. We can do something together here. Oh, great. And by the way, like serendipity sounds cool. Like I have a serendipity story. And so it's kind of like in a way, then you have these different layers and then depending on what layer seems most exciting, that's the one we go down the path. Fantastic. And if someone hears this and says, yes, I want to give it a go, what are the two or three practical things that they could do this week? You mentioned already one. Can I ask you for two more? Well, I think the first one is really, I would first always start at the underlying what's holding me back. So the kind of self-limiting beliefs. And so I would really step back and say, let me write down incidences in my life where serendipity could have happened, but it didn't. And then really understanding what is it behind that. And if it is imposter syndrome, then starting to work on this. If it is fear of rejection, then starting to work on this. And, and really kind of, that's probably also a conversation then to be had with a close friend or, you know, in some cases, maybe a psychologist, career coach. But I'm a big fan of really tackling those areas as a key priority because that is almost a pattern that will be there unless you really work on it. And so I think that kind of working on those underlying fears, I think is extremely effective and and then has a multiplication effect on everything else. In terms of other practices, again, I mean, I mentioned the hook strategy, which is my favorite, asking questions differently. I'm asking people, even in the family, right? Like asking kids, like, hey, what wouldn't you have expected today at school? What surprised you? Like simple things where even like getting kids into this modus of trying to figure out what are the kind of joyful things, right? What brought you joy today? Just something that gets away from how was your day, like which kind of like they will say, oh yeah, I went to school and then I took the bus and I did this, like which is very kind of descriptive to really trying to figure out what was something joyful, meaningful, what was something surprising and really kind of getting those conversations started. I'm a big fan of this because again, it it comes on a deeper layer trying to understand what makes the person tick versus kind of what is like, factual thing right like you can ask people when you ask people you know how was your holiday they will always say well the beach was nice and the hotel was nice and this was nice but if you ask them like what made you go in the first place or something like this they might say you know what i needed to repair my marriage and now we went and did it and that leads you on a completely different like layer of conversation than staying on the kind of how's the weather type conversation so i think these three are my favorites because it starts with meaningful connection and then there's a lot of other things you know how do you engage with people and so on and that's literally a whole book of the different practices around there that is around it but i think these are kind of the easiest for the beginning and where can people find you where can they buy the book is there anything that you would like to say to people that we haven't talked about yet that you would like them to do or get in touch with you yeah well the homepage is serendipitymindset.com the book is everywhere where books get sold the paperback is called connect the dots the art and science of creating good luck and the hardcover of the serendipity mindset. I'm at Chris Serendip on Twitter. And, you know, I think a lot of what we talked about to your question of, is there something else really comes back, I think, to that idea that, that we cannot always pick the situation we're in, but we can always pick our response to it. And that in a way, in Viktor Frankl's kind of spirit means that creates our freedom and in a way our serendipity, because again, things will go wrong, accidents will happen and so on. But 
our response to that in a way then leads us to that potential serendipity. And so if there's one thing you take from this conversation, it's really this idea that we have more agency and more power in a lot of situations than we think we have. And really kind of taking that power and saying, you know what, I'll do something with it. Then, you know, the breakup that feels like, oh my God, my life is over, right? Like a love breakup might become the inflection point for finding the person you were really meant to be and things like that, where it's really kind of then looking at life less as a static, this means I'm a loser, I'm a failure, I'm a this, to no, this is now the starting point to a new opportunity. This is the starting point to a new thing. And when you look at interesting people's careers, you will see that being fired from a position, of course, in the moment is the worst thing in the world. But then that was the kind of starting point to, oh, my God, I finally could find myself what I'm truly excited about, or I could finally do X, Y, Z thing or things like this, where it's really kind of, can I use this as an inflection point versus do I let myself define by it and stop there? And I think that's kind of this idea of what quantum theory in a way tells us, like, we got to be in motion. Once we stop, like, that's when things define us versus once we continue in motion, that's when we start defining things. Thank you very much, Christian. Very inspiring. Thank you. Thank you for listening today. If you enjoyed today's conversation, you might also like episode 36, where I talk to a group of fellows about expectations of mothers and how to deal with those. If this has been helpful to you and you'd like a practical community to support you, then consider joining the fellowship program on leadersplus.org.uk. During six months or nine months long programs, you will get access to inspirational role models who have experience of bringing up kids whilst progressing their career. You'll get support for practical challenges, for example, workload management, or saying no, developing your vision and making a plan for your career and family life in a way that works for you, supported with a small group of like-minded people. You will access research on what causes career progression and how to implement this practically in the context of looking after young children. And you'll also be able to attend sessions with your partner if you happen to have one. The application deadline for our NHS-specific Leaders Plus Fellowship Programme cohort is on 3rd of October 2022. Details are on our website and we have an open cross-sector programme in early 2023 if you want to apply for that. There are hardship fund spaces available for those in financially challenging circumstances. We haven't allocated those yet and will only allocate them after the application deadline. So you can go on the website and find out more there and even arrange a call with one of my team if you have any questions. See you next week.